this is Sophie Wilson, and you are listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Hi, this is Linus Wilson. Today I'm going to be talking about the updates to the story of the two Hawaiian sailors rescued by the Navy 900 miles off of Japan, Ms. Jennifer Apple and Tasha Fuiva. If you want to see the pictures to this, uh, there is a video on the Slow Boat Sailing YouTube channel called Hoax or Folly, Sailboat Rescue Has Many Inconsistencies in Its Story. And you can see that on the Slow Boat Sailing YouTube channel. Link will be in the show notes. Thanks to everybody who supported the Slow Boat Sailing podcast on Patreon.com. I'm pleased to announce that we hit our $80 goal Uh in thanks in part due to our new executive producer, sponsor, we're going to hold a drawing to see which patron gets to join the slow boat in Tahiti or Tonga or somewhere else in French Polynesia. That uh, drawing and details about that will be discussed in the bonus episode for patrons only. This episode is brought to you in part by the Fluid Plus Form 4K action camera. It's a Wi-Fi enabled and smart app camera with a 2.4 gigabyte remote control and long-lasting batteries. You definitely will want to check it out if you're thinking about doing underwater photography on your boat and definitely take a look at it on Amazon.com if you are thinking of buying a much more expensive GoPro. It comes with a lot of extras and we are really excited to have one on our boat for the 2018 sailing season and we'll be filming some videos with it very soon. All right, so let's go into some of the the update to the, the story of the Hawaiian sailors rescued by the U.S. Navy. I don't normally like to do podcasts, two podcasts in the same month or within a month, uh, but in this case, uh, I'm going to make an exception because we've had a lot of revelations in the last nine or ten days since I uploaded the last podcast, and you got to hear the side of the story from Ms. Apple and Ms. Fuiva as they were interviewed by reporters on the Navy ship uh, USS Ashland. But... You know, really soon after that, we started looking into some of the statements they made and seeing if they made any sense, right? So 50-foot-long sharks, Force 11 storm, those are things that are fairly easy to verify. So you do a Google search and there's there's no Force 11... Well, there's no... uh, Tiger sharks above 17 feet long, right? And sharks don't attack boats except in the movie Jaws. And they don't raise their, they don't teach their young how to swim. And so the whole shark tale they told while it made for good TV, uh, a good story, it stretches credulity and, uh, you know, I was contacting uh, the major media outlets about that uh, almost right after I, I, I put out the podcast. Um, you know, the other thing that 
that was really stretching credulity was the Force 11 storm. So they were very specific about the dates for the Force 11 storm that they supposedly sailed through. And so I was initially very critical that they would sail into a Force 11 storm, uh, especially right out of port where they should have had weather data. Well, I don't think that criticism was fair because there was no weather data on the Force 11 storm because it didn't happen. So they probably did check the weather reports, sailed on the third, and they didn't hit a Force 11 storm. There was no, there were no wind speeds I saw above 35 miles per hour. So definitely nothing in the sustained 39 would be the minimum storm, but a Force 11 would be a 64 to 72. Since then, you know, uh, since I started you know, tweeting and, and uh, circulating that stuff to the major media outlets. They started asking NOAA, people at NOAA. Uh, I looked at, before they called up the, the meteorologists, I looked at uh, just NOAA's website and in the central North Pacific, there was no storm in the month of May, no, no storm whatsoever. And it, it could not have been a squall because they said it was a three to four, two night and three day storm which if you actually listen to it very carefully it they're like they got into the storm of the first night and it was a two night and whatever uh three day storm but definitely there was no three day storm there was no two day storm there was no storm whatsoever uh anywhere near the hawaiian islands or that stretch of ocean yeah i'd, I'd even considered yeah maybe i should call up one of my weather routers and ask them to to comment on that but i was like yeah I mean, you just look it up, right, on Weather Underground. You look it up on the NOAA site, and there's a whole lot of nothing going on. Pretty good sailing weather, really. Uh, you can see why they departed. You know, maybe they got they got 20 to 25 knots sustained. Maybe they got some gusts up to 30. Uh, but, you know, it might have been uncomfortable offshore sailing conditions, but definitely was not storm conditions. And if you believe Jennifer Apple's accounts, she should be able to know the difference between those two. Maybe her newbie crew member, uh, Tasha Fuiva, uh, who'd never been on a sailboat, may not be able to distinguish between those conditions. But uh, I have evidence that uh, Ms. Appel, who was the owner of the, the boat, uh, you know, she, she's been sailing at least since 2012, and she's should be able to know the difference between uh, a near hurricane and 20 knots of breeze. Before I go on, uh, let's have a quick word from our sponsor, Mantis Anchors. Mantis Anchors founder, Greg Cutson tells why they created a modular design that can be easily stowed away for their revolutionary anchor. Well, you literally have some time, just a few seconds, to deploy something. And that something you deploy better work. And sometimes it better work at short scope. And when we want to make an anchor modular, it's not just because we want you to have a spare for a hurricane, you know, be able to put away a monster. But we want you to be able to have a spare for an emergency, which, meaning a spare anchor needs to have the same setting performance as your primary. That was kind of the, the thought. So we wanted to have, we didn't, we didn't want to change the design, we wanted to have the main anchor as something that is modular, so you can use it for a variety of applications. You can get Mantis anchors and their other innovative sailing gear at mantismarine.com or other fine 
retailers. So after we get past the storm and the sharks, the other big thing that set off a lot of red flags and was reported widely in the media was the EPIRB. And, you know, we did not know, the media never thought to ask if she had an EPIRB on board when they interviewed her on Good Morning America or the Today Show or CBS News or CNN. But, you know, uh, commenters on, on Facebook showed me, you know, that they do, there was an EPIRB record out there. Uh, what you had to do was you had to search for the for the Coast Guard documentation for the SVC nymph, which was Jennifer Appel's boat. You're able to find that fairly easily. And then you take the call sign, and then you take the call sign to the FCC, uh, which you, you get your ship station license from. And that tells about the ship station license, but it also tells about EPIRBs registered to the boat. And so one of the earlier owners of the boat uh, the the boat used to be called the Tracy Ann, had registered an EPIRB with that. Now, is that decisive proof that she had it on board? No. Uh, but, you know, I was blogging that and I was sending that information to reporters. And eventually, uh, the AP uh, called up the Coast Guard in Honolulu. And the Coast Guard in Honolulu said, as part of their debrief, that Ms. Appel did say that she had an EPIRB on board. You know, and th this is really the problem that this was kind of like a general human interest story uh, taken up by generalist reporters who'd never, you know, probably never stepped on a sailboat before, had no idea of kind of the gear uh, on it. And even, you know, I would say the U.S. Navy they probably, the people that work there are not as familiar with the, the gear that you would have on a sailing yacht versus a sailing ship, right? And, you know, the Navy is very specialized. You know, your job in the Navy, you're very specialized. Whereas uh, on a Coast Guard ship uh, or uh, on uh, Coast Guard dealing with boaters, uh, you, you kind of have that broader view of all the different systems on the boats. And, and so, you know, basic questions like, was there the SSB, was there a GPS, uh, all those things. Those questions that I was asking in the previous podcast, uh, we were able to get answers to primarily from the Coast Guard debrief, which came out through the Associated Press and then in other outlets that are uh, pay for the syndication with the Associated Press. Uh, so. They did have a GPS on board, right? So they had a handheld GPS that was working the whole time. So, you know, the big question was, were they lost? And the answer is, no, they were not lost. They also had the EPIRP. So they say they were making 98 days of distress calls. They set off 10 flares and they were waving a white flag, but they didn't set off the EPIRP. And you know, when it became public and reporters started asking her questions, uh, Ms. Appel said that, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, uh, she said that she did not, when she did her distress call, it was a pan-pan distress call. It was not a Mayday distress call, and she did not think that their boat was going to sink 
until uh, they got the open ocean tow. So the, the circumstances by which the U.S. Navy was called in was that Ms. Appel was able to wave the white flag and get the attention this Taiwanese fishing vessel. Uh, and the Taiwanese fishing vessel graciously offered to tow them, I think it was to Wake Island. And that didn't go very well, right? So obviously a, a big fishing vessel, a big long fishing vessel, like a 500 ton fishing vessel, probably goes a lot faster than a 50 foot sailboat. Although there's a big dispute whether or not uh, Ms. Appel's sailboat is 50 foot, the media has not tried to answer that question uh, to date, nor has the Coast Guard uh, answered that question, because the Coast Guard document says her boat is 37 feet. Sailboat data says that this manufactures strats and jenks. Uh, the only thing that comes up on strats and jenks on sailboat data is a, a successor to the Morgan 45. And I don't know, you split the difference, probably maybe it is a Morgan 45. I don't know. It just depends if you believe Ms. Appel saying it's 50 feet, or if you believe the Coast Guard document that says it's 37 feet, who knows? Anyways, that boat it has a much slower hull speed uh, than a, a 500 ton fishing vessel. So it's conceivable that they towed them at too high a speed uh, and that really freaked out uh, Ms. Appel uh, and uh, Ms. Fuiava, and that may have damaged the sailboat. And so she asserts, uh, Ms. Appel asserts, that it did lead to substantial damage to the boat, and it was only after that tow that she felt like they were going to sink within 24 hours, which is her statement uh, that you can see on the video, uh, the most recent video that I posted, uh, or you'll see in all kinds of other news coverage, we're going to die within 24 hours had the, the U.S. Navy not rescued us. Now, the other interesting thing about the, the tow is that uh, the Ms. Fuyava swam over to the fishing vessel, right? And that she made the distress call via their uh, satellite phone, right? You know, she, she called the U.S. Coast Guard Honolulu, which called the U.S. Navy to coordinate the rescue. The U.S. Navy steamed over uh, at top speed and uh, picked them up. But the Taiwanese fishing vessel offered to take them both on. So if they were really worried about sinking and dying on that boat, I don't know why they didn't go on the Taiwanese fishing vessel. I think if you read Ms. Appel's statements closely maybe that she is uh, she was trying to make the case that she did not feel safe on the Taiwanese fishing vessel uh, did not feel safe about them although she initially said that they were kind to her and it seemed like they were kind that they didn't have to offer them a tow uh, even though they didn't do it perfectly open ocean tow is really difficult thing to do uh, I you know, I've heard a lot of accounts of that, and it almost always ends badly, and I would not blame the, the persons towing it, uh, but, uh, you know, I think this, any skipper asking for an ocean, ocean uh, open ocean tow should be well aware that there could be problems with that. Okay, so the news reports say that they had a GPS 
the handheld was working, but the chart plotter wasn't working. I think I see solar panels on the back of her boat. I definitely see a wind generator on the back of their boat. So that at least the wind generator was charging some. Uh, she's complained that the VHF, she, had, she said in her statement to the C CNN, so I appeared on CNN's headline news last week, and uh, they sent me her full statement to CNN, which they did not read because it was too boring to read on the air. Uh, but uh, the uh, it, one part of the statement, she said she thought the VHF range was 200 miles, right? I don't know any skipper that thinks the VHF range is 200 miles. VHF range is 25 miles on a good day if your antenna's working. Uh, but it she... She says uh, with coordinating with the the Navy, she realized it was only a one to two miles. And in retrospect, maybe she would have pulled the EPIRB had she known her VHF range was so low. Ms. Appel, I think she lost her cell phone. I read that in a news report overboard on the early days of the passage, which shouldn't matter too much, but maybe she could make a cell phone call when she got close to an island. Although. I would think they would have more than one cell phone. I would think that her crew member would have had a cell phone too, uh, but maybe not. CNN reported that she had an Iridium satellite phone, Ms. Appel, um, but Ms. Appel, the skipper, kept on asserting that the Iridium satellite phone depended on the antenna, which either displays extraordinary ignorance or is just kind of a whopper. Uh, the, Obviously, sat phones do not depend on the VHF or SSB antennas. Uh, they have their own antennas, and they work separately from any uh, onboard antenna. Okay, so we've established they knew where they were. They had a lot of electronics working, although maybe not their long-range communications working. I think in the last podcast, they said they were sailing four to five knots. Okay, so they... Uh, the other big thing is they passed by two island groups that they were fairly specific to, uh, although they didn't say the exact islands they passed by. It said Kiribati and uh, the Northern Cooks. Okay, so Kiribati uh, is, you know, it's right on the way, really. You're coming from Hilo, and they said they, I think they went through the channel past Hilo. So you go straight down. So if they were having rigging problems at this point, which they seem to indicate, uh, and this is in pretty early in May still, that they passed by Christmas Island Kiribati. Uh, seems like the most likely place. It's a port of entry. It's a, According to news reports, it had 2,000 people in it. I looked at the charts. The charts are wonderful. They, it's got a great anchorage, easy entrance. It's not like an atoll entrance that you have to time, really. It's pretty wide open. Uh, I would think it'd, it'd be a slam dunk to stop there, especially if you're having troubles. I checked with the uh, Kiribati authorities. They did not stop there. Of course, uh, Ms. Appel and Ms. Fuyava said they never stopped there. Um, if they stopped there, they didn't check in. Uh, you know, I, uh, but Ms. Appel said in her interviews that Kiribati was too small for her to her boat. Like, she couldn't fit her boat in there, right? Um, but it's got a deep anchorage. It's got a deep entrance. Um, 
you'd have to have, I don't know, a 30-foot keel not to be able to enter there. Uh, so I, I don't understand that statement at all. Um, and I don't think that checks out with the facts. So I don't, you know, the question is, did she have charts or not have charts? And then she also made a reference to uh, some Bay of Wrecks or something, uh, which is on the the east side of the island. But that's not where you anchor. You you anchor on the west side of the island. You anchor in the leeward side of the island. So I, it's just really not relevant. That would be for somebody sailing past it and they kind of, get blown onto the reef or they they run into the reef because they didn't see the they well it's not Kiribati is one of the lowest island nations in the world mm -hmm. that they're you know when people talk about global warming uh displacing people they talk about Kiribati uh so so it's a low-lying island you could run into it at night especially if you're not keeping a good lookout and um you know you didn't have gps and you you know if the charts were terribly inaccurate, which is possible, right? But it's it's definitely not uh, too small uh, for a 37 to 40 foot sailboat to get into. All right, so as an aside, I've actually checked the historic AIS signals uh, for their boat. So we have their MMSI and I've not got any clarification if the boat does have a uh, AIS, I suspect it doesn't, uh, or if the the GPS unit is not working, the, the main one was not turned on, then it wouldn't be sending an AIS signal. I could find no historic AIS signals for that MMSI number. I did get a, like a free trial for a service. I did see a ton of AIS signals for my own boat. Uh, so I do know that those signals are out there, but I didn't find any for this boat. I guess, you know, from my perspective, it's just the call of land would be just too great, you know, to sail past Kiribati and to sail past the Cooks and just not stop anywhere ever. It just seems just odd, especially if you have a, a, a damaged rig. Uh, you know, I think she specified a bit more what it was. It was like a bolt was loose. So it doesn't sound awful. Obviously, everybody's been commenting about the pictures. The pictures look pretty good. Looks like the rig is doing good. Um, but, you know, in her most recent communication, the, the one to CNN that I uh, relayed to you, she even said she had a broken backstay uh, in addition to the, quote, broken spreader. You know, this adrift story would be a bit more plausible if they had some rudder problems. Uh, like, for instance, sailing yacht Zero had, but he was able to overcome by sailing uh, using the sails. Uh, but I got to say that uh, Christian from Sailing Yacht Zero in a previous episode, I think he's a little bit better sailor. Uh, than your average sailor. He says he's got a lot of experience and he may be a better sailor uh, than a Ms. Appel. Okay, and you know, the reason I kind of question the sailing skill is when they get to this 10 knot current they hit in the cooks, right? So they say they get within 600 miles of Tahiti in the northern cooks 
and then they hit this 10 knot current and uh they they turn around and go north into the doldrums give up on the trade wind belts and they don't go into the the atolls in the northern cook so that i'm getting the name wrong but i think the only port of entry in the northern cooks is this penarin uh, atoll which is a very big atoll maybe one of the biggest in the world and it is uh it's got four different passes there uh some are better than others but it's got a you know it seems like a reasonable place to go into and uh you just need to time the pass so maybe they you know she just didn't know that you need to time the pass at slack tide the alter and so maybe they went in at flood tide and they they saw a really big current and they couldn't overcome it now you must remember this is all before uh, the 25th of May, and their engine was still operational at this time. So they could have motored into the pass at uh, Penryn, uh, but they did not. There, I also found another atoll very close to that, uh, which has no pass, but people anchor on the leeward side. So obviously that's probably not the greatest all-weather anchorage being on the leeward side of an atoll in the middle of the ocean, uh, but that would be an option if you're having trouble getting through the passes uh, of atolls. Uh, but, you know, obviously the decision to turn up to the doldrums versus go downwind, which a boat with no, no rig whatsoever could go downwind and eventually hit land uh, is questionable especially when they had the engine operational that they could have motored in through a pass. The other explanation for their, quote, 10-knot current in the Cook's Islands was they, they said they were sailing east, right? But they were going west at five to six miles an hour, right? So they say they can sail at four to five miles an hour with their damaged rig and reduced sail plan. I think it's the other explanation is, and it seems like from their statements, they're really not talking about a past current because they're talking about they did it overnight and they were losing ground, was that they were not actually on attack, that they were not actually sailing upwind, but they had their sails out and they were sailing downwind backwards, right? So if you believe their statement of the 10 knot current, which doesn't exist, there's, you know, Gulf Stream is going to be your fastest open ocean current, right? Maybe you'll hit four knots in the Gulf Stream. Um, then, you, but it's going to average two and a half or two. They, then, you know, if they thought they were going four knots heading east into the trade winds, but maybe there's a knot of current that they get uh, going the other way plus they're sailing backwards at four or five knots, then it seems like they're going, you know, uh, it seems like they're, that there's a 10 knot current. So they could do the math on that and that would make sense, but you would have to assume that the skipper, obviously the, the, the newbie sailor person never sailed before, uh, the crew member, Miss Fuiva, you cannot blame her for this, but the skipper who has sailed since at least 2012 uh, should know how to 
uh, tack and how to sail upwind and get lift from the sails versus just being blown with the wind. But I think that's the only explanation I can have except that she she's lying about this 10 knot current, uh, that she had a, some serious sailing errors that she did not realize that she was not getting lift from the sails going upwind. And, and you know, why would you even, uh, at this point, you know, why would you really want to go straight upwind to Tahiti? You'd think that would be a good idea versus go downwind to Tonga or someplace like that. Okay, uh, or stop in the Cooks, which it writes next to. So, uh, yeah, you know, there are the exaggerations and there are the things that you would say like, duh, this is really not good sailing. This is really not good seamanship. And so I think there's that tension to think, you know, is everything said just a blatant lie or is is there's just a high level of not being ready to go to sea in terms of experience and understanding about a how, how a boat works, right? So I think, you know, in the, the interview that you heard, uh, that the conference call you heard in the last podcast, you know, I think she makes the comment that she hired the rigger to do this stuff for her. And she hired the electrician to do this stuff for to get the communications working, right? So maybe, you know, she just has a kind of low competency in terms of the boat systems, especially the electrical and the rigging. And uh, she wasn't ready to go to sea. And maybe, you know, some of the sailing and chart work skills are not there too, uh, in terms of Ms. Apple. Obviously, you cannot blame any of this on the poor unfortunate woman uh, who decided to be on this crazy journey. Tasha Fuiva, who had no sailing experience prior to coming aboard the SVC Nymph owned by Ms. Appel. Okay, so they turned north from the Cooks somewhere around May 25th. They hit this white squall, which supposedly literally floods their engine in the sense that it floods the cockpit and somehow damages the starter and the, the engine will no longer work. So, you know, I think the fact that they had engine problems offshore and were not able to fix it, I think that's kind of the most believable part of the story. Maybe the particular reason why the engine stopped working, I don't know. Obviously, after a long period of time, the engine's not going to make a difference anyways because they were going to run out of fuel. Uh, if they use it too much, but it might help them uh, motor into the last bit of an island or something like that if they're not so good with tacking, which maybe if you believe the story of the 10-knot current it, as not being just a tall tale, but something they, they actually believe, then maybe they're not so good at tacking. And then the timeline is vague and we don't really hear much about the timeline where they were and anything until they get close to wake island and they meet up with the taiwanese fishing vessel and so we go from like may 25th to october 25th when they're rescued um so that's so that's five months 
and for the last 99 days of the five months, they had 98 straight days of distress calls until they met up with the Taiwanese fishing vessel. And they were, the distress calls were in the form of waving a white flag, using VHF, and burning through their flares. And supposedly they made VHF contact with somebody on Wake Island, and they asked for a tow, but they weren't able to get back with them. And so that then after that, they, they uh, caught up with the Taiwanese uh, fishing vessel. Okay, so... That's what we know. I've obviously offered an interview request to Ms. Appel to, to tell her story, and I'd also love to have uh, Ms. Fuiva on, although I don't know how to contact uh, Ms. Fuiva. So why does this all matter? Um, you know, to me, it matters because uh, these two women and their dogs are really the only American sailors who have broken into the consciousness of kind of mainstream America, that people that are not avid sailors are not avid in the sailing community, which is a very small community subset of the American population. Um, but, you know, they've also got international coverage of this too. But I, I would say of the, you know, English speaking countries, probably the USA has the least interest as a percent of its population in sailing, that they're they're least active. And so really, Ms. Apple and Ms. Fuiaba, in all likelihood, are the most recognizable sailors at this moment, uh, US sailors to Americans. That you're, if you're talking about just doing a general poll of American adults, they'd probably be more likely to recognize these people uh, than anybody that won an Olympic medal, that competed in the Vendee Globe, uh, or complete, competed in the America's Cup, for example. So I think one of the big uh, criticisms are of the Oracle team before it uh, lost its second defense was that, you know, its, it's big sailors were not, <laughs> were not American citizens. Uh, so maybe, Maybe Larry Ellison is more recognizable, and but he's not really an active sailor. I guess he, he probably owns a boat, probably goes out sailing some. I don't know. Uh, I mean, besides his America Cup boat that he owns. Uh, and, uh, you know, maybe uh, Ted Turner's probably more recognizable, uh, but Ted Turner's a little up there in years. Uh, he retired from... Uh, Turner Media a long time ago, which is now uh, Time Warner, right? So he founded CNN and he won the America's Cup uh, way back when, over, I think, in the 80s, if I'm right. So outside, you know, the America's Cup billionaires, there's really, uh, you know, not a lot of very recognizable American sailors because sailors sailing in general as a lifestyle or a sport is not very popular. Now, Delos, right, uh, it's very popular among the sailing community and people that are interested in them, but I, I very much doubt that your kind of average American that does not, is not into sailing, it's not on their consciousness, knows who those, uh, you know, Brian and Brady are, right? 
So I think, for instance, maybe MJ Sailing got a lot of media coverage. Maybe they got on TV at one point. But that was, you know, really an anomaly. And of kind of the active cruisers, uh, they probably had the most mainstream media attention of anybody, save General for Apple. Now, if you go back, you know, a decade or so, then maybe you could argue that somebody like Steve Callahan has kind of a bigger uh, media profile, and that's probably true, who wrote the 76 Days Adrift, uh, about his, you know, ordeal at sea in a rubber raft. But, you know, he clearly obviously had a lot fewer resources and had a lot more difficult time uh, than uh, these two ladies who had a lot of electronics that were working, a lot of ways to communicate, including any EPIRB. So EPIRBs have changed dramatically, of course, since Mr. Callahan's day. He did have an EPIRB, but they depended on planes. They do not depend on planes anymore. If you pop an EPIRB, it goes to the satellites and it get, goes straight to uh, rescuers. So it's no no uh, problem with getting rescued with an EPIRB today, a 406 EPIRB. Okay, so I have a lot of commenters on YouTube and Facebook that, you know, think this is a hoax, this was a planned media stunt, and you, you can't completely discount that possibility, I think, at this point. Uh, but I, I will say uh, that for someone to do this as a, a media stunt, they have to have a really unrealistic idea of what media coverage is worth <laughs> in terms of uh, book sales uh, and movie deals and whatnot, right? Uh, so I would say if you have a, t a boat that you think is worth $10,000 to you, uh, having to lose it to get the media coverage that they got it's probably not worth it. Um, obviously, uh, you know, I, I uh, have had bestsellers in the Amazon category for sailing. And I think on the, the first day of Slow Boat to Cuba, for example, I bought a $15 mojito and I made like $6 from the book sales or something like that, right? So, uh, most sailing authors make a lot less than a few dollars a day. Uh, so it's, and, and you would not believe, I've read a lot of accounts of really crazy, wonderful, adventurous journeys that got almost no media coverage, that they didn't get the local news, they def definitely didn't get national news, they didn't get TV news. So those, those uh, things are not foregone conclusions at all. Um, you know, maybe because it was uh, two women and the dogs were cute, uh, it, it made it more likely to happen, uh, but certainly not guaranteed. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think what did help was they were on the Navy ship. The Navy did put out a lot of pictures and videos, uh, which made it easy for the networks to pick it up. Uh, and 
but that I that also I don't think is predictable uh, in terms of if you were planning a hoax, could could you expect that to happen? I don't think that's predictable. Now, that being said, you know I think most criminals, uh, and I'm not referring to the the people involved in this, but I'm just saying just criminals in general make bad decisions that they have bad assessments of the upside of their actions uh, and that they that crime does not pay uh, and I think if they you know so it's possible you know you could have a hoaxer trying to do this and they may think that it may lead to something wonderful but that's an unrealistic expectation in, in my point of view still I don't think uh, most people looking at this have my experience and they don't share my point of view and they may think that this hoax has paid off and it would pay off obviously if someone else tried to perpetrate a similar hoax if this were a hoax and I'm not saying it is so I think you know to discourage the thought of this and make people think that their real costs doing telling tall tales and getting rescued uh, for not real reasons that I you know I think that this case should be investigated but at this time the Coast Guard Honolulu said it had no intention of investigating it uh, that they beyond the survi survivor debrief that they had already done uh, they were not going to investigate any of the other claims that uh, Ms. Fuiva and uh, Ms. Appel made about being adrift at sea, for example. So you have the most famous cruising sailors in America, and they're famous for bad seamanship and for telling whoppers about storms and sharks. I don't think that's a very good thing. You know, if this is a publicity stunt uh, and that, that there's boat was really not uh, endangered and their lives were not endangered and they called for a rescue. Uh, this is conceivable. This could come under uh, some laws uh, that uh, under, under the Coast Guard's jurisdiction. So one particular law that the Coast Guard prosecutes a lot are mayday hoaxes where people make mayday calls that are not legitimate. And you know, for instance, people at at land calling for a mayday uh, can face uh, prison time, a felony conviction, a five thousand dollar fine, plus the amount of money it costs the Coast Guard to go out and look for someone. You know, I think uh, someone pursuing a potentially criminal case could. Uh, look at the sat phone records of someone else and find out if they'd made any sat phone calls in the last five months. Uh, they could conceivably look at those GPS signals on their GPS receiver that they were using to see their movements. I contacted the Cooks Islands uh, in addition to Kiribati and also uh, French Polynesia and so far, I have no evidence that they checked in to either one of those places. You know, one of the major challenges that I think that they 
faced on their journey was that they had two dogs, two very big dogs, and at least one that was of a breed that would probably have a big trouble getting into at least French Polynesia, but probably most other countries too. So one of the dogs was a pit bull mix, and I believe that is one of the band breeds that I know from getting my dog into Tahiti, uh, that they have uh, enumerated breeds that are not allowed in under any circumstances. Now, the benefits that they did have was they were from Hawaii, which is a rabies-free state, so they might have had an easier time checking in. Those two dogs uh, would be really a big deal to check in. I, I did check in with Tahiti to see if they they tried to to get those get import permits and they did not. Uh, so in in French Polynesia, if you take your dog ashore, you've got a problem in terms of you need an import permit. Uh, for your dog, whereas uh, if you keep them on the boat, then it's fine. But they were such big dogs; it seems hardly it seems hard to believe that they would want them to be boat dogs. So they, if they were visiting, uh, if they were able to visit French Polynesia, you'd think they'd want them to run around. But maybe they would do it, you know, without a permit. But of course, you run the risk that the dogs could be euthanized, and, and uh, you could face fines and penalties. Uh, for violating the law. So in short, I, I do think the Coast Guard uh, should investigate this matter. I do think uh, that they should put out some type of report uh, that that details what was on board, what were the reasons for its abandonment at a minimum. But I think they should also investigate uh, you know, what percent of the stories are, are true uh, you know, I think the Coast Guard found some inconsistencies. Number one, uh, they the AP reported that the mother made a distress call, you know, or called the Coast Guard because they were worried that her daughter was overdue, like a few weeks after they left, which was too early, really. Uh, but uh, they. The Coast Guard says, no, the mother did not do that. The 75-year-old mother of uh, Jennifer Appel did not do that. Instead, it was a man who did that who did not identify himself. Okay, so maybe the mom said she called, but maybe somebody else called. So that's something that could be verified outside. Maybe that's a reasonable, I'm, you know, in terms of my family, you know, when I'm doing an offshore passage, I tell them to always contact Jana first before they get worried because uh, <laughs> their expectations of what is reasonable and what isn't reasonable are really poor. Uh, so it's conceivable that the mom, 75-year-old mom, did not, did not know how long the passage would take. And uh, she also forgot that it wasn't her that made the call, giving them the benefit of doubt on that one. The other one is that the Coast Guard, re after that inquiry was made, the Coast Guard had a plane flyover that made a VHF call to the SVC nymph, and the SVC nymph reportedly responded via VHF, but it's not clear who was it that responded, the person that responded, and said that they 
would arrive in Tahiti in the morning. So within 24 hours, I guess, within a few hours uh, that they were hours away. So that contradicts the story that they never got within 600 miles of Tahiti. Um, obviously, the their boat would take, it couldn't do more than 200 miles in a day. So those are definitely things that should raise a few questions, at least, I would think, in terms of the Coast Guard's mind. The other thing is that the Navy's never really said why they declared the vessel unseaworthy. What did they inspect? Did they try to turn on the engine? I've asked these questions to the Navy. They turned me over to the U.S. Coast Guard, they said, was handling the investigation. And then the U.S. Coast Guard said, hey, we don't know anything that the Navy did. So there's really no coordination between the two government bodies at this point. Uh, the the spokesperson to the Coast Guard that I spoke to said that uh, they, they did coordinate the rescue, but they're not coordinate any investigation and they don't they aren't doing it in the bonus episode i'm gonna in addition to talking about the drawing for the to be a crew member this summer the other thing that i'll talk about is some information that's not been out in the media about ms appel's previous boat and uh, what happened to it and that will be for in the patron-only bonus episode. If you like this uh, podcast, uh, please write a, a rating or review on iTunes. That helps get the word out. Until next time, my name is Linus Wilson. Have some fun on the water. Hi, I'm Jana Wilson. Thank you for listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Subscribe to our free newsletter at slowboatsailing.com.